All right, take your Bibles this morning and turn to Luke chapter 18, the Gospel of Luke and chapter 18. And you just have your place there and we'll get to our text in just a moment. I want to introduce the message to this morning um, and make a few comments, introductory type comments, and then we'll get to our passage of Scripture. And I'm going to give you the title of the message, and I need to do that right away because uh, of what we're going to talk about in the introduction of the message. I'm going to preach to you this morning on this thought. It might be, it might be a startling statement to some, and you'll understand as we begin where I'm going with this, but the statement is this. There are Christian people who are not going to go to heaven. And the title of the message this morning is Why Some Christians Won't Go to Heaven. And before we get into our passage, I want to define some terms for you. Uh, and so you'll understand why I make that statement. Because like I said, it could be a startling statement. What do you mean some Christians aren't going to go to heaven? Well, we need to define the term Christian first before we begin. Because in our world today, the term Christian has a very broad definition. Uh, anything that, like for example, all Catholic or Protestant religions would be considered Christian in our world today. There are other mainstream type religions like Islam, for example, or Buddhism or Hinduism and others like that out in the world. Those are not classified as Christian. And so, in other words, any religion following into the category of believing in Jesus Christ would be considered Christian. And if you attend a church that believes in Jesus, then our world would refer to you or consider you as a Christian. Let's also define the term heaven because the thought is why there are some Christians who are not going to go to heaven. Defining heaven, every religion has some form of heaven associated to it. Either it's a state of being that one ascends to, like in Buddhism, for example, or it's an actual literal place that one goes to after they depart from this life. Generally speaking, heaven is associated with some, so some sort of paradise or utopia or something like that. Well, the Bible declares plainly what heaven actually is for the Christian. And it gives a great description of it in Revelation chapter 21. You just keep your place here in Luke chapter 18 and, and go to Revelation 21. And I'll briefly walk through this chapter because it does describe heaven for the Christian. What is heaven like? Well, in verse 4, the Bible says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. The Bible is describing here what heaven is like. It's a place where there is no sorrow. There's no tears. There's no death. There's no sorrow. There's no crying. There's no more pain. Won't that be a wonderful thing to not experience any more sorrow and pain, whether that's physical pain. Pray for Brother Gerd. He's hurting today. He's sick. Uh, he's here. And what a trooper. But pray for him. He's in physical pain and he feels it with every step and almost every breath. There's lots of people like that. Won't be that would be a wonderful thing to not have any more pain physically. What about emotional pain? That hurts just as bad as physical pain, sometimes worse. Won't that be a blessing to not experience that anymore? No more crying that comes from the emotional pain. No death that brings emotional pain and sorrow. Heaven's like that. What a wonderful thing. Verse 3 tells us, And I heard a great voice out of heaven, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. Look at verse 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, 
Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. God will be with them. He that sat on the throne, Jesus Christ will be there. That's what heaven is. That's really what makes it heaven anyway, is that Jesus Christ is there. It's a place of great beauty. If you look at, we're not going to read all the verses, but verses 11 through 21 describe what it looks like. And it'll be a place of great beauty. It's a place of brightness. If you look at verse 23, verse 23 says, And the city hath no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Jesus Christ is the light. There's no need for the sun. It's a place of brightness and glory. It's a place of purity. Verse 27 says, And there shall in no wise enter in anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's not going to be any sin in heaven. It's a place of purity. And heaven is a place for Christians. Look at verse 24. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it, and the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. They shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. You notice that those who are saved and those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, those are the ones who inhabit heaven. Now look at Revelation chapter 20. In verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, that another, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Now look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You know who those are that inhabit heaven? It's those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Anybody whose name is not written there, the Bible says, is cast into the lake of fire. Listen, the Bible is telling us that heaven is a place for those who are saved, Christian people, right? How is it that you get saved? Romans 10, 9, and 10. You call on the name of the Lord. You confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ. You believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. You get saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance of your sin, faith in Jesus Christ. That's how you're saved. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That's who inhabits heaven. So... Heaven is a wonderful place, and it's only a place for those who are Christians or who are God's children. And if heaven is for Christians, then why are there some Christians who won't go to heaven? Understand? Why don't you go to Luke, our text in Luke chapter 18 and before we begin, I'm just going to tell you, I'm not here to judge any person or anything. It's not my job. I'm simply here to present what the Word of God teaches and the Word of God says. And so I'm going to ask every one of you to please examine your own heart. Not somebody else's heart. Examine your own heart. And see if your life lines up with what God has said in His Word. Amen? We find in our text that the Bible is telling us that Jesus is going to give a parable. Let's begin in verse 9, and we'll read down through verse 14 or so. The Bible says in verse 9, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes 
of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. We find here in our text that the Bible tells us that Jesus gives a parable. And if you don't know what a parable is, a parable is a story or an illustration of a truth. And so it's a story that illustrates a particular truth. And there's always one central truth to a parable. This parable was spoken by Jesus, and it was spoken as a rebuke to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. You notice that in verse 9. Look at it again in verse 9. He spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So this parable is given by Jesus. It's a story to illustrate a truth, and it's a rebuke to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. In the parable that Jesus taught here, but uh, let me back up. There's a parable that Jesus taught before this, actually. And in the parable that Jesus taught before this, we saw that Jesus taught that men ought always to pray. And so Jesus says men everywhere ought always to pray. But here Jesus shows clearly that while men ought to pray, our prayers and our religious activities actually have no bearing on whether or not we are truly children of God. Because you notice this Pharisee and the publican, both of them went up into the temple to pray. Do you see that in the text? And Jesus said all men ought to pray everywhere. But our prayers actually have nothing to do with whether or not we are righteous before God. So we're going to dig into this. And I see here in this passage that these two men represent what I'm going to call two kinds of Christians. Using the definition of the term as it is today and what we've described We're going to find that one of them is self-righteous, and we're going to find that the other is self-abased. Jesus said at the end of that parable, he said, everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then let's break this passage down to make some applications. And again, examine your own heart, not somebody else's heart. Examine your own. Does your life line up with the word of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us today with your word? And Lord, we do need your spirit. And we've prayed already that the spirit of God would be felt here today. And Lord, we desire that Jesus Christ is exalted. We desire that your word is spoken in truth. And Lord, we need your help for that. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use your word today. Again, Lord, I'm not here to judge any person. That's not my purpose, not my job. Lord, the word of God and the spirit of God is what convicts and and what does the judging. And Lord, I pray that our, our heart attitude would be, Lord, examine me. Lord, I pray that you speak to me. Lord, I pray that you would work in me. Lord, use your word and your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing that we're going to look at here is in verses 10 through 12. And we're going to look at this self-righteous Pharisee. Remember, there are two kinds of Christians that are represented here. Look at the self-righteous Pharisee. The Bible says two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, we need to understand something about the Pharisees of Jesus' day. The Pharisees were the most numerous and wealthy sect of the Jews. They were those who had high position, religious position, but also political position. They were generally very wealthy. They were looked up to. They were respected. They followed strict 
legalistic practices, including separation from others. That's why the, the Pharisee said, I thank thee that I'm not as this publican. They didn't have anything to do with Gentiles. They didn't have anything to do with those who they considered to be sinners. They had strict adherence to the laws of God, or so they thought. They tried to. They never could actually keep the laws of God. But they, in their, in their uh, human abilities, they thought that they were obedient to God and strict followers of the laws of God. Great care was taken as to how they would present themselves in public. They would stand on street corners to be seen of men saying these prayers, and probably you can imagine they would have been flowery prayers full of words, but not actually saying anything. They, were, they did it to be seen of men. They did it to maintain reputation. They did it to maintain their status and their prestige and their power. They were devoutly religious people, but religion was all that they had. Let's look a little bit closer here. Notice how religious he was in verse 10. The Bible says that he went up into the temple to pray. Notice his attendance here. That should come as no surprise. He's a Pharisee. He's a religious ruler. Of course he's going to be in the temple. He was likely there every time there was opportunity. He's like a lot of, quote, Christian people who attend church the door, when the doors are open, whenever there's an opportunity, they're there. They're part of what's going on. He, of all people, would have been faithful to the house of God. I mean, look at who he was. He was a Pharisee. Often the Pharisees would be found praying on the street corners, in the public places, he would have been the one to, if there was such a thing, he would have received the perfect attendance award for the year. He was that devoutly religious. He wasn't missing an opportunity. No doubt he rose up early every Sabbath day to ensure that all was in order so that he could go to the temple of God. And when he arrived, he would take great care to be noticed of those who had come as well. That's who he was. Now, don't misunderstand me, and don't get me wrong. We need to be in attendance at church. Hebrews 10.25 says, Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, but so much the more as you see the day approaching. We need to be faithful in church. And you know what? We ought to be here every time the doors are open. If you are a saved person, there ought to be a desire in your heart to be in the house of God when the doors are open. That's just the fact of the matter. It ought to be that way. But let me say this to you. Being here is not what makes you a Christian. Being here is not what saves your soul. Faithful attendance is good and it's right, but that cannot make a difference in your soul as far as salvation and peace with God. It's not proof that you're saved either, by the way. There's a lot of people who try to show or demonstrate that I'm a Christian, I'm a saved person. Look, I go to church really faithfully. It's not proof that you're a saved person. It's not proof that you're a Christian. And listen, 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 listen. I wonder how many Pharisees there are in churches all over America today. We went to church today. We honored God today. We did all of our ritual and our ceremony and all the things that good Christian people do. We did it today. Got to be in church. Got to keep up a good appearance. I mean, if I don't go to church today, I wonder, you know, is the pastor going to think something? Wonder who's going to take notice and who's going to start to wonder. We better go to church today. I mean, look at who we are. We have a reputation to keep up, a name to keep up, but there's no heart in it. 
There's no heart to worship and honor God. There's no heart to be here, to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. There's nothing inside that says, I want to love and honor and worship God. It's all ritualistic. It's all ceremonial when you get to the bottom of it. And there's no heart for Jesus Christ in it. But we're Christians. But we're Christians. Right? His attendance was perfect. He went up to the temple to pray. Notice his attitude. Verse 11. Verse 11 says, The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as a publican. Notice his attitude. He was there in the temple. He was going through the religious motions. He was doing all of the Christian things, but he wasn't sincere in his prayer. Words were being said Words were coming out of his mouth, and no doubt a lot of words. Those around him heard what he said. It probably sounded really good and really spiritual, but his prayer was not offered up to God. The Bible says he prayed with himself. He prayed so that others could hear, and he testified of whose righteousness? His own, or his perceived righteousness. That type of praying doesn't even get above the head, much less the throne of God and the throne of grace. So you see his attitude, but also look at his assessment. (laughs) This is great. He prayed with himself, and this is what he said. Here's his assessment. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Here's his assessment of himself. Number one, he glories in what he is. What is he? He says, well, I'm not as other men are. Isn't it funny how Sometimes human people take pride in the fact that they are not as other as bad as other people are. All the while, there's all kinds of sin and wickedness in their life. Lots of it unnoticed, lots of it unseen. Sometimes it's sins of the heart and attitudes that go along with it. And men typically try to categorize sin. There's the moral sins, which are the really, really bad ones. You know, but lying or the wrong attitude or a sharp tongue or gossip or any other thing like that, that's not so bad. But listen, here's the truth of the matter. God hates it all. God hates it all. James 2 and verse 10 says, if you offend God's law in one point, you're guilty of all of it. You've broken it all. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no room to glory in ourselves. He said, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. He gloried in what he was. Self-righteous. He glories in what he does. Look at verse 12. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Notice here he says, I fast twice in the week. He glories in what he does. And I would say, wow, that's pretty impressive. You fast twice in the week? Now, for a little while there, I was doing some intermittent fasting, and then we went to Lebanon, and that all got messed up, and it hasn't ever gotten on track since. 
But I'm going to try to get back to it. Intermittent fasting and my hours of, of, of eating, my window of eating is like maybe eight hours in a day. And it starts at 11 o'clock and goes to whatever. And I need to get back on track with that. I could never boast that I am faithful at fasting twice in a week. But here he says, this is what I do. Look how righteous I am. I fast twice in the week. That's pretty impressive. You can say, man, that's something else. There's 52 weeks in a year. He fasts two times in a week. He's fasting 104 times in a year. Pretty impressive. You want to know something else? That wasn't actually even part of the law. That was not something that was required of the law. And the Pharisees are so strict with keeping the law. But that wasn't even something that was required in the law. That was tradition. That was custom. And the point I'm making here is you see how self-righteous he is? I'm even going beyond what God says to do. Look how righteous I am. Well, the Bible doesn't specifically say that we should do this or do that. But you know, that's what I do. It's a conviction of mine that I have. You following me? His attitude was one of self-righteousness. His assessment of himself was that he's even more righteous than what God demands. And he glories in what he gives. He glories in what he is. He's not as other men are. He glories in what he does. Here's what I do. I fast twice in the week. He glories in what he gives. Notice how verse 12 says, I give tithes of all that I possess. You know what? That statement right there goes in line with fasting twice in a week because that was not a divine commandment either to give tithes of all that he possessed. This poor, deluded Pharisee dreamed that he earned favor with God by what he did and what he gave. As if God needs a favor. As if he did God a favor, forgetting that God owns it all anyway. So you giving some tithes of all that you possess isn't necessarily some great thing, but he propped himself up by that. He starts with his prayer. He says, God. But that's the last time that God is ever mentioned. He said, God. And then after that, it's all I, 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 I. Never again does he mention God. He seems to be reminding God of all his self-perceived goodness and morality. Well, just let me remind you of all that I do for you. This deceived Pharisee feels good about the condition of his soul, presenting all of his, quote, good, but never recognizing his sin. You notice this? He feels good about the condition of his soul. And, so, and here's the application. I did all of that. We talked about that on purpose because here's the application to it. There are so many, quote, Christians who sit in churches today with the exact same mindset. They hold on to some childhood profession. I was saved when I was so-and-so. I grew up in this Christian home. And they offer up, and they, I go to church, and I'm in Sunday school, and I teach, and I do this, and I do that, and I serve. And they offer up to God all of their, quote, goodness. show that they're saved people. And by all outward appearances, the Pharisee looked as if everything was well with his soul. Those around him would have thought if anybody was pleasing to God, it was him. Look at what he does. Look at what he says. And by all outward appearances, it might seem on the surface, that everything is well with the soul. But here's the truth. Jesus goes beyond 
Jesus looks beyond just the outward displays. He knows the condition of a person's heart. And it isn't about what men think. It isn't about what men do. It's about what Jesus knows to be true in your soul and in your heart. And you know the job of the Holy Spirit is to convince or convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. And so often this is the case. The Spirit of God is at work. He's working in someone's soul. Even right now, there's a feeling inside. I can't take this. I don't want this. i got to go get a drink. I need to go to the bathroom. i got to get out from under the pressure. Or the Spirit of God is drawing and trying to point His finger at your heart and at your soul. And all the things about you that you say make you a Christian are not, uh, have none effect at all as to whether you're, or not your soul has peace with God. We can offer up all that we want, but the outward display means nothing to the Lord who knows what the truth is in the heart. Now, I want you to go to Matthew chapter 7. Because Matthew 7 illustrates for us that what Jesus knows is the real issue. It's the real matter. In Matthew chapter 7, we find a very chilling passage of Scripture some chilling verses that ought, to, that ought to cause us to pause and to think and to just stop and examine. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, the Bible says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. What a chilling passage of Scripture that there are these religious people in this world who put together and, 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 and show all of this self-righteousness and they stand before God and say, God, look what all I did for you. I devoted my life to you. I was in church every Sunday. Look at all the things I did. Look how much of a Christian I was. And Jesus says, I never knew you. What a chilling thought. What a horrible thing for, quote, Christian people to end up spending eternity in the lake of fire, and they did it from a church pew. I'm not here to judge anybody. I don't know anybody's heart. Jesus does, though. He's the one who knows. And the challenge, again, is to examine your own heart and your own life. There's a lot of Christian people who will never go to heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. These were people who believed in Jesus. And yet they were none of his. You follow what I'm saying here? The Pharisee. Jesus gives the parable, and it was a rebuke to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. The second individual here is the publican. Go back to our text. So we examined. First of all, the self-righteous Pharisee. But second of all, let's examine the sorrowful publican. Because here's the other kind of Christian. In verse 13, the Bible says, and the publican. 
standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And notice Jesus' words. I tell you, if Jesus says something, it's true. Amen? I tell you, Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now, when we examine this situation, this publican was much different than the Pharisees. He wasn't a man who was well-respected. He wasn't a man of prestige. He might have been one of wealth. It's possible because the, because the publicans sometimes were thieves. Zacchaeus sort of alludes to that, that sometimes the, the public, publicans would steal. Historically speaking, the, the Jews hated the publicans because they worked for Rome. They collected the taxes and they kept the, the things that were skimmed off the top, they kept for themselves. He wasn't a man who was well-liked. He wasn't one who was well-respected. He wasn't one who was held in high regard. In fact, it was the opposite. They were considered traitors. Often they were thieves. But that's not really what made him so different than the Pharisees. What made him so different, first of all, was his attitude. Look in verse 13 again. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven. He has not come with a proud heart as the Pharisee did. He did not come and say, God, I thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee over there. He hasn't come with, with uh, praying with himself on his mind or exalting himself and promoting his actions. No, the opposite is true. He came with, sh with the shame of sin on his mind. He was burdened under his heavy load. There was no goodness in himself that he's offering up. There was nothing to boast of. He did not view himself like the Pharisee did. First of all, we find here that he was sensible of God's holiness. Notice this in verse 13. He, he, the Bible says that he stood afar off and he would not lift up so much as, I, as his eyes unto heaven. He was sensible of God's holiness. The Pharisee was not. He realized that there was a great distance between God and himself. He realized that there was a, a difference between God's character and his own. And he stood afar off. I'm not worthy to even come before the Lord. You know, standing afar off describes our true position as sinners before God. Notice what the Bible says in Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 13. Back in verse 1. The Bible says that. And you hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. In verse 2, it describes our life of sin. We walked in times past according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation or our lifestyle in times past in the lusts of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. That's the human condition right there. Fulfilling the lusts of the flesh and the desires of the flesh, walking according to the course of this world. But now skip down to verse th 13. But now, this is the saved person, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh 
the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And again, this is talking about Jews and Gentiles and making of himself twain of one new man and how we are in Christ. But there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles and Greeks and so on. But verse 13 says, when you're in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now that is speaking physically, but it also can be speaking spiritually. We don't have peace with God. We are not sons of God in our natural flesh, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we are made nigh to God. Amen. We are made sons of God. We've gone from enemies to being sons of God in our natural condition. There is a great distance between God and us. That's our true position before God. Isaiah 59 and verse 2 says, It's your iniquities that have separated between you and your God. God is holy, and God is righteous, and God is just, and the Bible says that God is of, of pure eyes, that he cannot even behold sin. It's abhorrent to him. It's, it's a horrible thing. He can't even look at it. And guess what? That's what you and I are. Nothing but sinners. And we have no right to come before God or be in the presence of God. We have no righteousness of our own. And it doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian or not. This man didn't come just to pray. He didn't come just to have some religious activity. He came to have a personal dealing with God. He stood afar off. And the reason he did is because he was sensible of God's holiness. I don't even deserve to be in the presence of God. Look at verse 13 again of our text, because you'll find here as well that he was conscious of his own sinfulness. Here's another thing that made him so different. He was conscious of his own sinfulness. In verse 13, he wouldn't come near. He stood afar off. He wouldn't lift up his eyes unto heaven, but here's what he did. He smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He was convinced that the source of his guilt, it went a lot deeper than just some words or some actions or some things that he did in this. It wasn't things that he committed. That was not the source of his guilt. It was his own heart that was deceitful and desperately wicked. He understood it. There's nothing good in me. He was conscious of his own sinfulness. But then notice his assessment in verse 13 as well. Remember the assessment of the Pharisee? How he thought of himself? Look how this man thought of himself. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. His assessment of his condition was that he needed God's mercy. That was his assessment. Not something he could do to earn favor with God. What he needed was mercy from God. He thought himself as justified, but as condemned. He stands before God, a condemned man, so overwhelmed with his own shame, that he couldn't even lift up his eyes unto heaven. And let me say this to you, friend. When a person is thoroughly convinced of their guilt before God, they have no trouble running to God for mercy. Because they know there's nothing good in me. When you get to the point where you are so overwhelmed and convicted of your own guilt and your own sin before God. Listen, there is nothing righteous in us. There's no thing that I can offer God to say how good I am. I have no trouble. Even if I've been in church all my life, I have no trouble running to God for mercy. Because I'm condemned. But what will other people think? 
if I step out in the aisle today and I go forward that I need? What will people think? People think I'm saved. I have a profession of faith. Right? We still haven't come to the place where we are so overwhelmed with blame, guilt, and condemnation that you humble yourself before the Lord. It doesn't matter what other people think. In fact, that's a fat lie because other people will say, praise God that you saw it and that the Lord drew you to himself. This was the defining difference between the two of these men. Right here. His assessment was that he needed mercy from God. And he stands before God a condemned man. And the only way that you'll ever find peace for your soul is when you come to the point where you see what you are and you plead to God for his mercy. That's how all men must come. Sinners must come broken before the Lord. Do you know that's why churches and even Baptist churches are filled up with unregenerate people? They preach a gospel of easy believism. They preach a gospel of all you need to do is just believe in Jesus. They preach a gospel that says, you know what, come as you are, stay the same. They preach a gospel that says God loves you and he does love you, but that's all they major on. They don't ever preach the true gospel that we're guilty and condemned before God. And you're going to face the judgment of God for your sin. You cannot save yourself. That's why you need Jesus. He died for you. He will take your place. People who are not thoroughly convinced of their guilt have no need of a savior. So we got churches all across America preaching that kind of a gospel, which is not a true gospel, by the way. Read Galatians chapter 1. And we get the big crowds and we get all the people and so on. And look, we're all Christians. Look, we're all serving God. And it's full of unregenerate people whose lives have never been changed because there's no Because the true gospel changes a life. The true gospel, the true message of salvation is what this man said. I don't even deserve to be in the presence of God. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. I deserve the judgments of God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The publican knew he would never deserve the mercy of God. None of us do. We're all born separated from God. We're all destined to eternity without God. That's why we need to humble ourselves, admit what we are, repent of our sin, and put our faith in Jesus Christ. It's not some religious work. It's not a ceremony. It's Listen, it's not just what... Baptists do. Notice his assurance, the last thing, verse 14. And I love these words. Jesus' words. I tell you. I tell you. Jesus was the one who said, this man went away justified rather than the other. He wasn't trying to convince himself that he was justified. It was Jesus who said that. And that is the main difference. The Pharisee had an assumption that he was right with God. But the publican had assurance that his soul was right with God. The Pharisee left the temple assuming that all was well with his soul. He had convinced himself. But the publican left with complete assurance because Jesus said he was. He went away justified. You know what that word means? To be declared righteous. It's a legal term that God uses. God says, I'm declaring you righteous. 
Pharisee thought that he was righteous. Jesus said, this is a parable, and it was a rebuke to them who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. The Lord declared the publican as righteous. It wasn't because of who he was. It was only because of what God did for him. Did you know, and you do if you're a saved person, but did you know that it is possible to have absolute, full assurance that your sins are forgiven and that you're a child of God? It's possible to know that you know that you're saved. There are people who struggle with doubt. There are people who go back and forth. There are people who are constantly wondering. Sometimes they feel saved. Other times they don't. And I just don't know for sure. It is possible to have full assurance, to know that you know that you're a child of God. You know how that happens? The Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you giving you comfort and assurance that I am a child of God. The Holy Spirit bearing witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. Is that you? Do you know that? The reason why some Christians won't go to heaven is because they've never humbled themselves, admitted what they are, pleaded to God for mercy. Their righteousness is all self-righteousness. Like the Pharisee, trusted in himself that he was righteous. The publican pleaded for mercy because he knew that he was lost and helpless. So I'll just ask you as we close this morning, are you a Christian today? A real one. Are you going to heaven? Are you trusting in Jesus and his shed blood to wash away your sin, to present you spotless and worthy before God? Or are you trusting in some religious experience, or some profession that you made when you were young, or the idea that you're somehow good? Or have you seen yourself like God does and in repentance toward God, cried out for forgiveness. And that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. You workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. What's your heart condition today? As the Spirit of God is speaking, you respond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the power of it. And Lord, I pray that you would use it to draw people to yourself today. And for the one who is religious but lost, Lord, may he come or she come to the place of full surrender and repentance toward God. crying out for the mercy of God. That's the only way we'll ever have peace with God or be justified to be declared righteous by God. Thank you, Lord, for salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would have your will in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet, heads bowed and eyes closed.